talking to 15 Minute Medicine, where we try to make medicine as simple as possible, but not simple in depth. I am one of your co-hosts for today, Farad Jugumadzi, and as always, or at least most of the time, I'm joined by Afosa Ahonba. Today, our topic that we're going to discuss with you all is burns. So to start off, we have a case that was presented by a wonderful doctor all the way from the UK, Miss Roba Kunko. So everyone, here's the case. So thank you very much, Peter. My name is Roba. I'm a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. I've been asked to talk about a case that I remember. And one particular patient that sticks out in my mind is a little girl that I treated a few years ago while I was working with colleagues in Bangladesh. She, uh, when I met her, she was six weeks old, um, and she lived in the slums of, uh, of Dhaka with her mum, who was a single mum, quite a young mum, and they lived in one room, quite a noisy slum, and in that room there was a bed on one side and cooking facilities on the other side. So mum put little, um, her little baby next to uh, a little lamp, which is an open fire to keep her warm, while she cooked on the other side. And she didn't really hear much from the baby because it is quite a noisy slum. But when she finished cooking and looked round, unfortunately found that um, her little daughter's arm was on fire. Um, as a flame burned, she put it out quickly, but by that time, quite a lot of harm had been done. She put the fire out, quickly took her baby to the, to the nearest health facilities, which unfortunately they didn't have burns surgeons or burned um, trained uh, staff available so they took her to the the nearest kind of big burns facility the next day by the time we saw her um, she was quite a sick little baby because she um, was really really sad because she she her, her entire right hand had been completely completely burned so there was nothing really salvaged from her right hand and the burn had gone up her arm there's a lot of damage done to her forearm and then there was more damage uh, on the right side of her chest, extending up to her face. Um, so she was physiologically quite unwell because she was unable to maintain her temperature. She was unable to manage fluid balance. She was in a lot of pain and in a lot of distress. So it was really, really heart heartbreaking to see such a small baby in such distress. So. Um, when we got her, we had to start immediate resuscitation to get this baby stable. Our anaesthetist came in, we stabilised her, and then um, with the appropriate kind of fluids and analgesia, catheters, um, and, and all the things that you really need to do to uh, stabilise um, a patient with burns, especially a very small child. Um, and then we had to make decisions about how do we move on with management, and it's really, really hard because actually part of the reason she was sick was the burden of this kind of um, dead necrotic tissue that was making her really sick and her body was obviously uh, reacting to that so we really needed to take all of this off and it's quite a hard decision to amputate an arm in a baby even though it is completely burnt and needs to be done so that was kind of from us as staff it was just quite difficult to do it conceptually but we had to do it, and we also had to excise the burn that was there uh, and the rest of the body, because you know she had about 20-25% body surface area that was burnt. And the problem is, once you take off all of that, what do you cover that with? Because she would have exposed areas, again, which would be adding to her instability physiologically. And if we took skin grafts from other parts of her body, that's also adding to the insult, and whether she would survive that is also quite a critical question for us. But we did need to take the dead tissue off, so uh, we did take it to theatre. And I remember having to do this amputation, which was uh, together with my colleagues there. And we all found it really, really difficult to do. 
We tried to salvage as much as we could, and I think it was kind of mid-forearm where we had to do her amputation because there wasn't much left. We excised the nest of the dead tissue, and we used skin graft, which we meshed to expand to cover her. She, she did struggle quite a bit after that, uh, and sadly, she didn't actually survive. In the, she survived for a few more weeks, but she was physio- physiologically so poor, uh, she didn't manage to get through, through this. So it really does, um, it does stick in my mind, because I, I uh, remember her being so small and having to go through such, a, such an ordeal. And in particular, what really upsets me is the fact that something like this is very, very preventable. She wasn't born with this problem, and it is her situation that led to where she was uh, and it's such a preventable um, disease burns is uh, that's something that we really need to look into. Uh, Farai, I think you need to put a, some respect on Dr. Kunkar's name. He called her Miss, you know, he's a doctor. Because he's a surgeon, Miss. Oh yes, 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 the British surgeon thing about Miss and Mr. Exactly, I was putting too much respect, not even too much. I was giving her due respect. All right, fair enough, fair enough. All right, Miss Kunkar, we're very grateful to her for providing us with this case, although very tragic. And I guess maybe that's why it also stands out to her. She made a lot of mention about the physiology that the child was going through, the massive assault on the child's physiology. So just to go briefly over what occurs when someone suffers such a massive burn. Essentially, the body goes into this massive pro-inflammatory state or systemic inflammatory response syndrome or SIR syndrome where there's a massive release of pro-inflammatory cytokines, catecholamines, and essentially the body goes into a hypermetabolic state. This coupled with the loss of the skin barrier, which helps us to protect us from infection, helps us to protect us from heat loss and fluid loss. That also is a huge factor in how we lose a lot of heat and fluid during burns. Also with all these pro-inflammatory cytokines going around, you, become, you have very leaky capillaries, which leads to extravasation of fluid from the vasculature into the tissues. So you lose actually a lot of fluid. So this is why fluid resuscitation and burns is so important. Now, if in the case of a young child, as mentioned in the case, they have very little physiological reserve. So such an assault on the body and all the systems can be quite devastating. Before we go on to the classification, I just want to add something just as a matter of interest. So it also mentioned that with your burn patients, initially they go into this pro-inflammatory state or um, hypermetabolic state. From my recent experience now working in burn wards, you actually notice that all these patients have a long-standing tachycardia. tachycardia. So it's not just like the first two or three days. Patients can often have a tachycardia or, or high temperature pyrexia for up to two years post the burn event, so to speak. And there's been research going into finding ways to kind of dampen down this response because that can lead to better outcomes. But just so that you know, when you're looking after burn patients, if there's a lot, if there's a tachycardia or temperature, don't immediately assume that there's infection straight away. This may just be this long-standing pro-inflammatory hypermetabolic state. Moving on to the classification now. So with burns, there's two things that you need to classify that will guide your management. So one is the depth of the burn and two is the size of the burn. So in terms of the depth of the burn, you can talk about first degree, second degree, third degree, and fourth degree, or you can talk about your superficial burn, partial thickness burns, etc. So just this is the classification I'm going to quickly um, run through. So your superficial or first degree burns are characterized by erythema and pain, and they do not blister. These burns are not life-threatening, and therefore um, further management, we don't really have to speak about them. 
But just so that you know, basically this extends into the dermis but does not go through it. Your partial thickness burns is now where we start getting a bit more concerned. So these are characterized as either superficial partial thickness or deep partial thickness. Your superficial partial thickness burns are moist, painfully hypersensitive, even to air, and they can potentially blister. They are homogeneously pink and they bronze when you touch them. Your deep partial thickness burns are drier, less painful, they can potentially blister, they're red or they're mottled in appearance, and they do not blanch on touch. Then your full thickness burns are usually, they look kind of almost like leather. Skin may appear translucent or waxy white. The surface is painless to light touch or pinprick, and they're generally dry. Once the epidermis is removed, the underlying dermis may, may be red, but does not blanch with pressure. So this is just a quick classification that we want to be familiar with. And like I said, if it's a superficial burn, we are not too concerned. Those patients, I can even say 100% of the time, are going to go home without too much further management. It's only once we get to the partial thickness where we're concerned. Then in terms of size, so in your casualty setting, we and what we're taught in medical school, you're going to use your rule of nines to estimate the size of burns. A more accurate way of estimating sizes would be using your lund browder but it's not practical because it can take a lot longer. You need a lot more mental math. But what makes it better is that it makes age-adjusted changes in terms of your estimations. So year by year, you can see the difference. Whereas with your rule of nines, it's basically divided into your children or adults. There's not much space for teenagers or a toddler, et cetera, et cetera. Then with your rule of nines, just find a picture on Google and you'll be able to, to see from there. It's quite easy. In most casualties, you also find nice pictures of rule of nines. Yeah, so I'm not going to matter off these numbers because you're not going to remember them anyway. So whenever you have to deal with it, just look for your rule of nines on Google. And just to know the main differences between an adult and a child is that the proportion dedicated to the head in a child is much larger than that of, of an adult. And an adult's legs are bigger than a child. But yeah, just find the picture. So just to touch on with the initial emergency management of a burns patient, obviously this is a major assault or trauma to the body. So one would apply ATLS principles. And that's why we learned our alphabet in preschool about your A, B, C, D, E's. So obviously A being airway and C-spine, B breathing, C circulation, D disability, and E exposure. One would obviously try and stabilize all these aspects while initially resuscitating the burns patient before moving on to definite management. Farai, I think you mentioned that you have a good summary of how to approach the ABCDEs. Yeah, so again, just to go through this very quickly, initially, before you even touch your A, you need to find out the kind of the status of the patient, just your, you know, your Triple H hazards, hello and help. Then you want to remove an ongoing impeding process. So if you see that the patient has clothes that are still smoking or even possibly they're still flames, you want to get them out of that as soon as possible to stop the burning process. Then immediately you jump to your A's. So like if also was telling us, A is your airway. In burn patients, you always want to assess whether the patient's airway, the patient's airway is patent. And if not, do they require intubation? If in doubt, always intubate. Even if you can extubate the patient one day later, it's fine. Rather, don't take the risk of not intubating because once you lose the airway, it's going to be very hard to get it back. So a few key indications for intubating. So if a patient, if the burn size is more than 40% total body surface area, and just remember when, that, when we talk about total body surface area, this is not including superficial burns. 
then if the person has sustained burns to the head or the mouth, if there's clinical signs of smoke inhalation injury, if the patient has an outer level of consciousness, so GCS less than eight, if there's a change in voice or if there's hoarseness, then you know that there's a good chance that the patient may have incurred inhalational burns, so you want to intubate them as well. Or if there's a delayed transfer to a burn center for a patient that needs it. So with regards to breathing, obviously you want to make sure that the patient has adequate chest wall movement. You also want to exclude carbon monoxide poisoning. Patients are at high risk of this if they're in a involved in a burn or flame injury where there's a burn occurred in a closed enclosed space. This obviously would have implications because carbon monoxide competitively binds with oxygen on, on hemoglobin. So you might be, appear to actually be saturating well, but you're not actually getting that oxygen delivered to the tissues, which is why it's important to check the hemoglobin um, levels, carboxyhemoglobin levels on your blood gas. So then now if there is, like, if it does look like there's a carboxyhemoglobinemia, then what are you going to do? So normally with those patients, you would, essentially it's supportive management. Giving them 100% face mask oxygen usually will help displace the the carbon monoxide of the hemoglobin. So 100% oxygen for about 40 minutes usually does the trick, or at at least 40 minutes. I think I also read something where they were saying that the normal like half-life of the binding of carbon monoxide to hemoglobin lasts like four hours naturally. But once you give that 100% oxygen, then that can reduce the half-life to one hour or even less, like you're saying. So yeah, I think that's really interesting and very important to remember. Then can I ask you now what you said, if the patient's had like circumferential burns, what are you going to do then? So yes, uh, with regards to circumferential burns, as I mentioned, you want to make sure that the patient has adequate chest wall movement. So if they do have circumferential burns, they may not be able to do that. So you may need to actually perform an escherotomy just to relieve that tension and allow them to breathe adequately. Moving on to the circulation, I think this might be the most important thing to deal with with burn patients. So I've already spoken about your classification in terms of your depth and your size. Now, especially the size comes in, is very important. So now in terms of calculating the patient fluid requirements, we're going to use your Parkland's formula or modified Parkland's formula where it's very important to figure out the size because you don't want to under or over rehydrate the patient. So in terms of your modified Parkland's formula, you're going to need the patient's weight, the burn size, as well as the rate that you want to be giving it. So in general, we speak about giving at a rate of 2 milliliters per kg, except if it's electrical burns, where now you'd increase it to 4 milliliters. But this will also depend on how well the patient is being is responding to your fluid requirements. So take, for example, a 70 kg 70 kg weighing patient, and they have 10% burns. So you're going to say 2 times 70 times 10%. And then that's going to give you the total amount of fluids you need to be giving over 24 hours. The most critical time that you want to be giving your fluids is your first eight hours. So you want to give half of that total volume in the first eight hours, and then the other half over the remaining 16 hours. The maths is charming. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I had to dig deep for that 24 minus 8. To see, to realize whether your your rehydration is going well, you need to also have a urinary catheter running for the patient or inserted for the patient. And in general, for a child, they need to be having a urine output of 1 milliliter per kg at least. And for an adult, 0.5 milliliters per kg. If not, then you're going to have to adjust your the rate at which you're giving fluids. Sorry, right. Just to add on there, that's 1 milliliter and 0.5 milliliters per kg per hour for adults and children. Per hour, yes. Yes, thank you very much. And again, 
underhydrating is bad enough, but you also don't want to over re- over rehydrate because that also has disastrous consequences where that can affect your cardiac physiology or respiratory physiology. So always you need to make sure that you're maintaining adequate just enough, not too much, not too little. Now moving on to your DNE, so your disability. In most cases, you wouldn't suspect, unless there is, is a, let's say, for example, a car accident where a car exploded and you have a flame injury and a possible head injury. But assessing the GCS of the patient, they may be, it may be decreased secondary to hypoperfusion of the brain. And in that case, obviously, your resuscitation with fluid is the most important thing. Make sure their pupils are equal and reactive, patient is alert, and adjust anything that may be correctable. And in terms of exposure, obviously they've lost their protective barrier against heat and fluid loss. So in terms of exposure for E, you'd want to make sure that they're well protected, well covered and dressed with um, antimicrobial dressings, so most common initial management, and making sure that they don't lose too much heat and as a result of their, their burns. Then your general adjuncts to your primary survey, just to mention a few, th- a few other things, is get your analgesics on board. This, these people are in a lot of pain already. So don't be shy to give them narcotics in small, frequent doses. If a patient has more than 20% total body surface air burns, you may want to insert a gastric tube because they may actually have abdominal distension and then their aspiration risk if you now need to insert an endotracheal tube. Antibiotics are not generally indicated for prophylactic use, but further management, if you can prove that there's a there's septus, then they may come in handy. You want to also find out the tetanus status, and if so, you might need to give tetanus toxoid um, injection for the patient. So now just to briefly touch on the definitive management of burns. As mentioned also in the case, there was a balance or need to debride the necrotic and dead tissue, and at the same time also skin graft. Skin grafting is most likely indicated in cases where there is deep superficial thickness burns as well as um, full thickness burns and further onwards as well as the need for a multidisciplinary team in the management. So obviously, in terms of recovery, they'll obviously need physiotherapy, occupational therapy, in terms of contractures, in terms of helping them, preventing atelectasis. They're in a hypermetabolic state, so they're consuming all these macronutrients and micronutrients quite rapidly. So you'll need a dietitian on board, social worker, if need be. Just a lot of support and psychological support, because it's also a massive trauma and like, in some cases where patients also have disfigurement, that's also a huge thing to deal with. So we obviously need to get a lot of professionals involved to holistically manage the patient. So obviously we can't talk about everything, but the last thing that we just want to mention is the criteria for transfer. So burns can be dealt with in general at all different levels of care, whether it be primary, secondary, or tertiary. But there's some cases of burns where they need to be taken to a much higher level, so your secondary at least or your tertiary centers where there's adequate burn, burn management. So here's a few criteria for patients that need to be referred for further management. Patients that have partial thickness burns greater than 10%, burns involving the face, hands, feet, genitalia, perineum, and major joints, third-degree burns in any age group, electrical burns, chemical burns, inhalational burns, and then burn injuries in patients with pre-existing medical disorders that could complicate management, burn children, in hospitals without qualified personnel or equipment for the care of children, burn injuries in patients will require special social, emotional, or rehabilitative intervention, and any patient with burns and concomitant trauma, such as fractures, in which the burn injury poses the greatest risk of morbidity or mortality. So just to end off for our listeners, and I think this is the most important takeaway we want you to have, 
is about the importance of understanding what led to the situation. It was also mentioned at the end of the case how important it was that this was a preventable illness or condition that this child underwent. So I believe that we need to really focus on targeting interventions that can actually target prevention of burns. Brad, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I definitely agree with what you're saying, Mufosa. The take-home message is prevention, prevention, prevention. I'm sure there's already a lot of ideas out there about how we can go about it, but start pushing more and start advocating more for our patients in terms of prevention, in terms of creating safe spaces for our children and also our adults, you know, in terms of preventing the conditions that lead to burns, the poor socioeconomic mm-hmm. circumstances. We've had a lot to talk about, and I think we can go on for hours, particularly about burns itself as a topic and the overarching socioeconomic causes thereof. But I think we've run out of time. So that brings us to the end of this episode of 15-Minute Medicine. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any comments, questions, any sort of feedback you'd like to give, please mention it on our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us continue to try and make medicine as simple as possible. But not simple.